And good afternoon. You are tuned to 94.1 FM KPFA here in Berkeley and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. It is 3 p.m. Please stay with us for Cover to Cover Open Book. This is Nina Serrano, and I'm so pleased to be with you on these very last days of 2011. Today's program was originally recorded at La Peña, where I was interviewing Oscar Jiuelos, the noted Latino author, and here is an excerpt of our interview. Before we play the interview, I want to invite you all to come and celebrate and honor Yvette Hochberg at a KPFA special benefit filled with poetry, music, and good friends. That Sunday, 3 to 5 p.m., January 8th at La Peña. Yvette is fighting cancer and needs us. Yvette has given so much to KPFA, and now we want to give to her. And now for the interview with Oscar Jiuelos. I feel like I was here just a moment ago, so <laughs> thank you. Gracias, Nina. Um, let me tell you about uh, my memoir, Thoughts uh, Without Cigarettes. Basically, I mean, the first part of the book talks about my parents' experience in, in Cuba. Uh, my father came from uh, a small town in East in Oriente, eastern Cuba, called Higuani. He grew up on farms from a very large family. Uh, my mother came from Olguin. My father's family, Iwelos, were in Cuba from at least 1820. If you look at me standing here right now, I'm very blonde and very fair, maybe some Catalan influence, I don't know, my mother's side of the family. But I had an Irish great-great-grandfather whose last name was uh, O'Connor, who went to Cuba at the turn of the 19th century and uh, married into my father's side of the, <laughs> the family. And so, 100 years later, uh, 150 years later, his genes, he married a woman named Concepcion. So if you can imagine what a wonderful character it would be to have Concepcion O'Connor. <laughs> <laughs> I was born uh, in New York City in 1951 in the uh, woman's hospital in Harlem. Uh, my parents had come up from Cuba in 1943. My father had two sisters, one of whom uh, was married, Maya was her name, and she had married um, a musician named Tayeria, who, uh, Pedro. He had um, performed in the 1930s and 40s with Javier Cugat or Orchestra. So he was always playing venues in, on the east coast of the United States and in New York. And so he came up with his wife in the early 1940s to live. Uh, my father had another sister named Borja, who uh, I don't know where she learned English. My theory is that she learned English in either, either a language school in Olguin 
or in Havana, but she went to work for Pan Am Airlines back in the day when they first started their flights from Havana to New York and back. So she was transferred to New York City, and, uh, well, the two sisters of eight, they were very dominant ladies, and they wanted my father to go up there, and that's how he ended up in in New York City. And uh, my brother was born uh, during the war. Uh, my older brother was born during the war, and I came along in 51, this blonde-haired uh, Rubio, uh, and uh, very, you know, but the household itself was very, we were on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, on the outskirts of, uh, I guess, uh, in the neighborhood of Columbia University, and, um, you know, but our household was rather, you know, all our visitors were, uh, were Cubans or other Latinos, like Puerto Ricans and so forth, and um, the language spoken in my household was was Spanish. And, um, and that's what I grew up speaking, insofar as a four-year-old boy can speak Spanish. But in uh, 1950, 1954, during that summer, just before I was, uh, 1955, just before I was uh, turning four years old, we went down to Cuba to Oriente uh, to visit with my mother's family and uh, for three months. And I remember that it was very wonderful. And the book recounts some of my uh, memories of that time. And, but what happened when I was, was down there, and I always say ironically enough, I got rather ill, very sick with uh, um, a disease of infection of the kidneys. I ended up coming back to the States I uh, went to St. Luke's Hospital in Manhattan for about a month, and then they transferred me to another hospital in Connecticut, in Greenwich, Connecticut, where I spent uh, almost a year away from my family, away from la lengua de español, okay, away from the security of the home and and the, you know the ambiance. And as my mother <laughs> always said. Uh, as to, not to quote her exactly, but in fact, she said, you went into the hospital speaking only Spanish, and when you came out, you spoke only English. And that was something I heard over and over again growing up. But the little bit I'm going to read right now is just to give you an idea of some of the pros in the book, but also about this issue of English versus Spanish and what I, um, I recall that happened, okay? <clears throat> I didn't see my mother for six months, so she came to the hospital finally because it was very infectious disease. So they they kept people um, contact. You know, a nurse would bring me in from the ward in which I stayed, where a dozen other beds, both emptied and filled with children, monthly, and there behind that visitors' room partition, glass with a mesh to speak through, like a, you know, when you go to prison, you see these prison movies, that's the hospital version. Behind that visitor's room partition, eyes blinking, I would sit while my mother, the nice looking lady on the other side, no doubt tried to make friendly conversation with the five-year-old boy, her son, the delicate looking little blonde with the bloated limbs, who as the months passed seemed to remember her less and less. Of course, she was my mother. I knew that. She kept telling me so. Soy tu mamá. But she also seemed a stranger, and all the more so when she started to speak Spanish. 
a language which as time went by sounded both familiar and oddly strange to me. I surely understood what she was saying. I always would. Her words seemed to have something to do with our apartment on West 118th Street, con tu papá y hermano. And yes, Cuba, that beautiful wonderland so far away of love and magic which I had visited not so long before. Facing me, she'd raise the pitch of her voice, arch her eyebrows as if I would hear her better. She'd wipe a smear of lipstick onto a Kleenex from her black purse, muttering under her breath. I remember nodding at her words. I remember understanding my mother when she said, Mira, aquí. Look what I have as she reached into her bag for a ten cents, little ten cent toy. And, sabes que eres mi hijo. Do you know that you're my son? And things like, Pero, ¿por qué estás tan callado? Why are you so quiet? And, ¿y qué te pasa? What's wrong with you? What happened to be wrong with me came down to the fact that I never answered my mother in the language she most wanted to hear, Espanol. I just couldn't remember the words, and this must have truly perplexed her, for I've been told that before I went into the hospital, I spoke Spanish as cheerfully and capaciously as any four-year-old Cuban boy. So my mother would sit back, across from me, muttering something to herself, no one being around to help her. Maybe in her moments alone, waiting, she prayed, a little black rosary inside her purse. Though I bet that just as often as she asked God for guidance or gave thanks, she chastised him for doing a lousy job. And why wouldn't she? <laughs> Somewhere along the line, during this long period of separation from my family, when that partition between my mother and me became the story of our lives, I had absorbed English from the nurses, doctors, and children of my acquaintance with some kind of desperate ease. English in, Spanish out, or at least deeply submerged inside of me. You see, from my childhood onward, I have had long complicated dreams in which only Spanish is spoken. Okay. Thank you. This theme about your mother runs all the way through the memoir. She even later, she develops as, as the memoir goes along mm -hmm. until finally at the end, she too is a literary figure. Yeah. So in this, you get separated from the language. And what do you feel the impacts of that were as a young boy growing up right there by Columbia University and meeting other Hispanics? Well, I um, I always say, I said I always said, when I got older when I was a kid I was a, I was shell shocked I mean I didn't know what the hell was going on my parents my father spoke pretty good English he worked at the Biltmore Hotel on 43rd Street he was a union member of local number six restaurant and uh, you know nightclub workers you know I mentioned the union thing a lot in the in the in the uh, in the memoir because it was very important to him. But he, I, you know, it's an interesting thing. Just, I hope you don't mind if I digress. But, um, you know, the, there's a thing about the book uh, about growing up Latino, and I had, I had the double whammy. I mean, I didn't look Latino, and then I was separated from the cultural context. 
and the language pretty much. And, uh, you know, I speak it. I'm doing CNN and Espanol in Miami. That should be a hell of a lot of fun for me. But, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I, you know, there's something about being an immigrant, the mentality that unless you have some uh, real positive energies, uh, uh, people to encourage you, you grow up with this attitude that you really are kind of not the first class, you know. For example, I always thought that my father is, uh, he was a bright man, but he only had secondary schooling in, in, um, in Cuba, as did my mother, or high school is the equivalent, right? And I never thought of him as being particularly brilliant in language, although he spoke English. He spoke very quietly, very short phrases, come here, do you go to the store, uh, you know, let me tell you this. Uh, he spoke to me also in Spanish. But years later, I, I had this version, I had such ingrained idea that to be a son of an immigrant was limiting. Years later, I found out after he had passed away that he not only spoke English, but he spoke French, and he spoke Italian, and he spoke some Greek, and he spoke, you know, because that's what the languages of what the people in the, in, the, in the Biltmore were speaking. So, you know, I guess I'm getting at that because... I, I grew up n neither here nor there and always trying to figure out where I was coming from linguistically. And um, as I got older in a shell shock state, <laughs> of course, stepping back from the culture as a teenager, for example, I was very interested. Uh, Reuben Blades once, I talked to, uh, to Reuben Blades about this. It is Blades. It's not Blades, as so many people correct me, but uh, that's how he pronounces it, Blades. You know, I found refuge in music, and uh, it was mostly American or, you know, Beatles and all that sort of thing, uh, British pop, and, and um, that's also how Ruben began to play music himself. And uh, in essence, I did everything in my power to step away from the culture I had been raised with, okay? Other complicating factors came along, but eventually I started to discover a new way into all these quests to f answer a lot of questions I had about myself. Who am I? What am I about? What's this relationship? How can you feel like an outsider with your own family? Which is something I was raised with, and part of it was the Spanish although both my parents were very, you know, affectionate. And I began to think a lot about my story, which is in, in uh, Thoughts Without Cigarettes. I went to public high school in, in New York City and then eventually uh, <laughs> went to a series of subway schools. And it was at City College that I began writing. But there was an influence artistic influence in my family and it turned out ironically enough to be my own mother so if you'd like I could read a little bit about that she's doing an excellent Thank interview you. don't you think Thank you. very good observations I'm um, you know this is just to give you a little circumstance I don't want the readings to go too long so if they do please just tell me to get the heck off this you know, podium um, well, once again, and this is about her. Well, once again, I led a double life. The book is a lot about double life.
coming uptown to visit with my mother, I did my best to become a dutiful son, though my mother never had any idea of what I was doing with myself. When I graduated from City College with a BA, with the distinction of becoming the first Sikh student to have done so, and my mother asked me, ¿Qué hay de nuevo? What's new? And I answered, I just graduated from college. She seemed genuinely bemused. In the meantime, she, the period of our troubles, which had followed my father's death, he passed away when I was 17, when his ghost filled the house, had slipped away. Oddly enough, through death he had become somewhat sanctified in her mind. They had their troubles occasionally. With his presence lingering in the halls, as is both his struggles and more pleasantly, his peaceful, stoic quietude in the mornings had left after traces that one could literally still feel the reality that he was gone had finally set in. I now realize how much he loved me, el pobre, she'd say. For my part, I couldn't disagree. Better to have her speak of my pop kindly than not, though she had, in the meantime, made that apartment a museum to their life together, and it would always feel frozen in time. Now and then, I'd turn up with the lady I'd married. They got along well enough despite their long episodes of linguistic confusion, and we'd take a subway to Brooklyn to spend the afternoon with my brother and his family. Often when I'd end up with her alone, for my wife was often away on acting tours, my mother could drive me crazy, mainly asking a bit too much about my private life. During those long trips to Brooklyn, when she tended to recount to me the minutiae of her days, from her every meal, conversation, dream, notions, door sale, bargains bought, and numerous relajos, funny stories from the neighborhood, it seemed that she couldn't bear the idea of silence as if it would take her to a dark place. I would inevitably think back to my childhood with her, and I'd naturally become a little solemn, even occasionally annoyed. Waiting for a train to come, I'd get up to check out the newsstand or some penny gums from the column dispensers over and over again just to give myself a breather. Nevertheless, I came to admire my mother in ways that I couldn't have Im imagined. In the five or so years since my father had died, she had begun to build a new, fairly independent life for herself. She had her friends, her daily rituals, her doctor's appointments, her continuing education classes in the evening, English, I think, typing some basic secretarial, her routines at church at which she became a popular presence, particularly at funerals, where she could manage to either outmourn the most devastated of mourners or, if in an entirely different mood, cheerfully sweep into a funeral parlor as if a new and better day had come. <laughs> She'd tell me about her favorite shops to frequent, her little part-time jobs along Broadway, and to my surprise, she began a sincere, a sincere attempt to read in English mainly by way of the five and ten cents romance novel paperbacks she'd pick up here and there in the neighborhood. But there was something else going on at the same time. Though I had some memories of having seen her while I sat quietly in a corner as a kid, scribbling something down with a pencil into composition notebooks, 
I never knew until those years later that she had been, in fact, resurrecting one of her childhood enrichments, the writing of poetry, at which she had apparently always excelled, and which, given the much longer moments of her loneliness, she had taken up with a vengeance. When I'd come over to the apartment, one of the first things she did was to regale me with some ditty she had just written the afternoon or night before, often involving the departed spirit of my father and situated in, in an eternal Cuban garden of her imagination in which she made her cameos as a bird. She's always writing about pajaritos, uh, a blossom, a winged butterfly, while he entered into those poems as a handsome stranger, a wandering mariner, a confused angel whose heart inevitably held the secret to a lost love. And listening to them, I had to admit that there was something wildly creative, if not, and, if not out and out gifted about them. And while she had hardly ever been a reticent soul, with each new outing, her delivery, which she referred, which she, excuse me, which she refined after readings for her friends, like Jaclita in Argentine, Argentine, and Carmen, Cubana, my godmother, and the woman she knew from her, women she knew from her church, her manner became more brazen, self-confident, and theatrical, as if indeed my mother, who believed in spiritualism, had channeled her father, who had been a poet in Cuba, to the point that she would tremble saying her own words. Then she'd break out laughing over her pompousness. Soy loca, see? She'd ask. Those visits were always interesting, if sometimes a little hard to take, even for my older brother, who's speaking much better Spanish than I, remained the closer of us to her. Because while Jose had his painterly aspirations and I had my occasional longings to make myself something of a, to make something of myself as a writer, it was she, not us, who held court and demanded that we pay her homage as an artist, perhaps the only real one in the family. After all she had gone through back in the days when she had first arrived in America and for all the miracles she had to endure ever since, I couldn't blame her. Here for the record is one of her poems. This is my book. This is my dream. This is the flower that perfumes my room. This is the boy who weeps because he dreams he is lost. This is the water that flows without knowing it is a river. I would kill myself to have written that line, you know? <laughs> this is the water that flows without knowing it is a river. This is my heart that laughs and moans. And then it gets maudlin religious because he was martyred. I do not suffer, nor do I, nor do I want. I trust only in God. Anyway. Just a little bit of that. Thanks. Earlier in the memoir, when you talk about your mother, 
she is talking at you all the time because you come out of the hospital and you're not allowed to go out and play with the other children mm-hmm. and uh, you don't go to school and everything around you might have germs mm. so she keeps you from that and she makes all this delicious delicious Cuban aromatic food for the rest of the family mm. and you have to eat gruel or the or, or it's uh, equivalent very bland very bland food and you don't have any friends so that you're Mm -hmm. constant your mother is constantly talking at Mm -hmm. you and she's speaking in spanish Mm -hmm. and it it's making you quite unhappy and withdrawn Mm -hmm. and so it's interesting to see not only how you evolve but then how your mother evolves that once uh her children are grown, mm-hmm. her husband is gone, mm-hmm. that she evolves back to the girl that she was in Cuba, which was the daughter of intellectuals. Yes. And she becomes a poet. Yes. So that, for me, that was one of the very interesting things about the book and also that connection of how our health, how our biology is mm-hmm. so much part of our psychology. Uh, so much of what I can only read about, I speak about writing, but so much of what makes you go that way are circumstances. And uh, I always say that uh, you start, one starts writing to ask questions, and then you continue writing to find answers, you know. And uh, when I wrote my first novel, for example, I had graduated from uh, City College, and it just seemed like such a major this part it was so much a part of me it was something i thought about you know the way i'd grown up but i never talked about it to anyone you know i never mentioned a word to anybody and um it's a way of bringing people to life and giving them a permanence that they would never otherwise have and so i'm very proud of my first novel um our house but more than that you know, I had grown up in, in a very mixed neighborhood ethnically. Uh, Irish folks and Italians and black folks and, and you know, so your run-of-the-mill uh, working-class neighborhood in Manhattan. And yet we were also near a university, Columbia University. And if you went further uptown, there was, you know, City College where I eventually attended. Also, we had the influence of Harlem, which was seven blocks from my doorway. I mean, 125th Street was, you know, we used to hang out down there. And so I had all kinds of stuff coming at me all the time. I wasn't a typical Latino, and I wasn't even aware of what really being a Latino was about. I do know that people did not relate to me as a Latino unless they knew me from the neighborhood. Um, Like my godmother, bless her soul, uh, Carmen, you know, was always speaking to me in Spanish and, 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 and very kindly and sweetly. But if I went into a Latino neighborhood, as, uh, I used to play a softball in Harlem. And, uh, you know, as I, got, I had more than my share of getting jumped or chased down by Puerto Rican guys who didn't know, you know, my background. And then on the other hand, I'd be hanging out with, you know, white folks who didn't know I was Latino. And I'd, it was like being a spy. And it, not in the James Bond movie, but, you know, it was like being a spy. And I'd hear, you know, I'd overhear stuff. This effing spick and, you know, I, I grew up hearing all that stuff. And, you know, it, it puts a dent in your sense of pride or makes you angry. And when you become angry, you, you're not thinking straight. 
On the other hand, you know, I've, I tell young kids today, I, I did a fundraiser for, uh, you know, scholarships for immigrant Latino kids in Winston-Salem, and I have my commandments that diez uh, mandamientos to be, uh, you know, Latino, you know, to feel pride, and I tell them, you know, don't believe everything you hear and don't believe everything just because someone says so, you know, and by that I mean negative things about, you know, um, Latino kids, you know, Latino culture and all this, and this country now is in a very strange place, you know, suddenly they don't have the money to, to exploit, <laughs> you know, so now they're getting, you know, uh, they're reversing a lot of, uh, of uh, long-held uh, um, patterns uh, in regards to uh, Latinos. I'm probably getting in over my head talking about that, but um, I did not grow up with books, and in fact, um, I was hardly aware of anything close to Latino literature because, in fact, very few authors who are Latino. You mentioned Piri Thomas before, and I knew I knew his work from uh, high school. I remember. I'll tell you a story about Piri Thomas. I went to this uh, high school in Manhattan, uh, Brandeis High School, which was 80% um, black and and other the other mostly Latino and a small minority of the other folks. And Piri Thomas came to speak to the school to tell folks that you know if you want to get out of the uh, the the barrio, you have to like stop hanging out on the stoop. And he was jeered off stage. So. Uh, so there wasn't a whole lot going on in terms of uh, of uh, reinforcement about the Latino thing. And my situation, I'm sorry, go ahead. This is your host, Nina Serrano. You've been listening to my interview of Oscar Jiuelos, and he's been reading from his autobiographical book, Thoughts Without Cigarettes. I want to invite you to join KPFA and the Middle East Alliance to honor and celebrate KPFA producer Yvette Hawksberg, who is fighting cancer. The celebration is this Sunday, January 8th, next Sunday, January 8th, at La Peña from 3 to 5. I thank you all for listening and thank Jill Montgomery for engineering.